Not only did the hymn writers capture the event in words, they certainly captured the mood in the notes as well. This is a very somber passage that is before us in the Gospel of Mark this morning. It's Mark chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 32 through 42. And yet, not only is it somber, it is also of great comfort for us as God's people. Mark chapter 14, picking it up then at verse 32. Let us hear the words of the Lord. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying, the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for God's blessing as we think about, reflect upon this passage as well. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we once again come to you in the morning hour of this, your holy day. Father, we do thank you for the words that have been read. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be found attentive in this hour. We pray that you would give Pastor Bob the words to speak, that our eyes and our hearts and our minds would be open to accept this word and that would be forever changed and uh, better equipped in your sons jesus christ holy name we pray amen and amen so we have before us this morning the prayer of jesus there is he is in the garden of gethsemane and as we think about that prayer of jesus we want to look at three things in regards to it this morning. First of all, the place. The place that he chose. The place that he purposed. The place that he was drawing his disciples to. Uh, secondly, the reason for the prayer. It's a good question for us to ask. Why does Jesus need to pray? What's the point of Jesus praying? And why now? And what actually is he praying? So secondly, the reason for prayer. And then thirdly, some lessons of that prayer for you and I 
as we reflect upon this passage. First of all, the place. We are told back in verse 26 that after they left that upper room, that they're headed to the Mount of Olives. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet, as it's sometimes referred to. Named, as one would think, for olive groves uh, that are covering the slopes, or covered the slopes, at least at the time of Jesus. Uh, Josephus tells us that the Romans, uh, in their invasion of 70 A.D., uh, cut down all the trees around Jerusalem for, I think it's somewhere near 12 miles. So if you go to uh, Jerusalem and take your little tour to the Mount of Olives and some guide says, here is an olive tree that has been here since the time of Jesus, well, they're not actually telling you the truth. That may be their hope. It might be a good selling point. But according to history, all the trees around Jerusalem were cut in order that the Romans might lay siege. It's about 2.2 miles from Jerusalem, so the phrase, they went out to the Mount of Olives, means they're leaving the city of Jerusalem and they're walking about uh, those two miles. The Mount itself is approximately 2,700 feet tall. Uh, I guess in Michigan we'd call that a mountain. In some places in the world you'd call that a mountain. Other people would simply call it a big hill. But it is indeed referred to as the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, though, that we do know from various archaeological research that the Mount of Olives not only had olive groves upon it, but it was also used as a cemetery. Uh, they estimate that somewhere around 150,000 people are buried there. It seems like a staggering number to me, uh, but uh, such indicates the research. During this time, however, it should be noted, this time of the Passover, as well as the other two major feasts, the Mount of Olives becomes a campground. Thousands upon thousands of people are there on the Mount of Olives. This becomes the place where they stay. Jerusalem can't house all the people, all the pilgrims that come. And so uh, the spot of the mountain, uh, the groves of trees become nice places for them to stay, uh, to camp out during this week-long festival. It's probably part of the reason why Judas has... Uh, inaugurated with uh, the other conspirators that there has to be some identifying way of noting that it's Jesus because they're going to run into lots and lots of people. How are we going to distinguish the one? There will be other people that are greeted, other people that are known. So how will you know? And so they arrange for the particular manner that we shall look at next Lord's Day. So they're at the Mount of Olives, but in particular, the place of prayer now is the Garden of Gethsemane. They came to a place called Gethsemane, meaning olive press. Where exactly this is located has been lost to history. We do know that the word itself, though, means olive press. So somebody owned a track of land, probably with some olive trees on it, 
in that tract of land, they built a press for the crushing of the olives for the producing of the oil. It is interesting that the place of crushing is the place that Jesus goes. And we certainly see him under the crush of the day and of the moment and of the concerns that are there. It's an area that uh, was not too large, somewhere perhaps at the base of the Mount of Olives. Uh, some estimate that these kind of gardens uh, were typically uh, not much bigger than uh, half an acre of ground. But we are told something else, this place of prayer. It's not only on the Mount of Olives, it's not only in the garden, but it's a short distance from everyone. We learn that as we read through this passage, that they leave eight, as it were, at the gate. Jesus moves on a little bit further with Peter, James, and John. But then we are told in verse 35 that he leaves them and goes a short distance. Not a long distance, but a short distance. So that he is, in essence, alone. And if you note the words, the words tell us that he fell to the ground. He is prostrate. Unlike the picture that you can buy in which Jesus is kneeling at some rock and his arms are upon the rock and his hands are nicely folded and there's this beam of light shining down upon his very calm demeanor, the scene biblically is anything but. Jesus has fallen to the ground. He is prostrate with his face to the ground, his body completely on the ground. And here is where we hear our Savior pray. Secondly, why then does he pray? Seeing he is God and seeing he knows all that is about to take place, seeing he is fully aware that he is going to go to the cross, that he is going to suffer and die, that third day he's going to rise again. He has spoken of this numerous times in the Gospel of Mark, and certainly in his divinity he knows and understands these things. Why then pray? Why then take these moments? Why then take this time to pray when his disciples obviously need some further instructions? Could they not have been more profitably spent warning Peter a little bit more precisely about what is coming, speaking to James and John about their little haughty and prideful attitude about wanting to sit on his right and left, could he have not spent time with those other eight disciples or with the other folks? Why not spend some time with his mother? Instead, he's alone in a garden, a mountain, alone, praying. First, his reason for prayer is his humanity. 
Jesus is fully God. But he is also fully man. I know our concerns. I know our cautions about that. We don't want to downplay his divinity. On the other hand, we can get so caught up in the fact of his divinity that we forget he is fully man. Keep your finger here, Mark 14. Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, writing to Timothy, says to him, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men. Now note how Paul identifies the man, Christ Jesus. Don't think that the Bible does not underscore this fact. Or simply assumes it. Fully God, John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, put it as the hymn writer. But Paul wants us to understand that he is also the man, Christ Jesus. Fully man, not partly man, but fully man. You see, it's here in the garden, here as Jesus prayed that we see that humanity. That's what's coming to the forefront here. That's what we're seeing. Here we see the mystery of Christ Jesus. A mystery that once again we... We, we can believe, we can confess, fully grasp, fully understand. No. But the Word is pointing us to this aspect of His being. You say, well, what's the point of that? Why, was, why is Paul emphasizing that in Timothy? Because you see, this is our glorious hope. Not that God came down. But that God in flesh came down. Our representative. Our flesh. Our covenant head. Just as Adam had flesh, so too does Jesus Christ. 
just as Adam was fully man, so is Jesus Christ fully man. As Adam represented us in that covenant of works, so does Christ, the man, represent us in the covenant of grace. Our sins as human beings have been atoned for. We see the humanity of Jesus. Secondly, we get even a little deeper than that, don't we? We see his soul. Why is he praying? Listen to why he says, my soul, verse 34, is very sorrowful, even to death. My soul. What does Jesus mean by that? What does Jesus mean by his soul? Well, the Greek word is psyche. The Greeks understood that word to mean the seat of one's affections and the seat of one's will. The self. That he, in his humanity, as fully man, his self, his being, the whole of his humanity, the core of his humanity is sorrowful, grieved, weighed down. Just as we read, he hungered. Just as we read, he thirsted. Just as we read, he was tired and slept. Just as we read, he walked and didn't float from place to place. So his soul is grieved, sorrowful, weighed. Why does he pray? For in his humanity, what else would you do? What else would Jesus do? But pray. As I said, this is, this is mystery to a certain extent. But yet, we understand it by our own life's experiences, do we not? And yet, how little of this experience we understand. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This, he's not talking about, oh, I'm thinking about the cross. He's thinking about this moment in time. This weight upon his humanity is bringing him to the point of a sorrow that brings him to the edge of death itself. Not my words, not my interpretation, the words of Jesus himself. Do you realize yet he hasn't even prayed? 
Do you realize he has not yet prayed? He has simply explained to the disciples why he's there, what he's going to do, why he's going to do it, and he has not yet prayed. Verse 35. Going on a little farther, he fell to the ground. Interpretation. He prays that if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. How does he pray that? In these words. So Mark, first of all, is telling us the interpretation of what he is praying. Now he's going to tell us the words. Here is the prayer. This is the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is the request? The cup. The cup. Oh, Father, if possible, remove. The cup. What's he talking about? What cup? No cup been mentioned. He's not carrying around a cup. The last time we heard about a cup was, was back in the upper room, right? And he took a cup and he gave it to them saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. A cup. This is the cup of his death. This is the cup of his blood. Jesus is looking into that cup. And his soul so sorrowfully it brings him to the point of death. Why? What, what's in this cup? You know what's in that cup? My sin. Your sin. The perfect sinless Christ sees the sin for which he is going to die. And when a sinless, perfect being looks at sin, perhaps the word horrified, that sin that sin is going to be laid on him. That sin is going to become his. Look in that cup. Look in that cup this morning, brothers and sisters. Look. 
Do you see what Jesus is seeing? Oh, now your neighbor's cup, your cup. Do you see it? Do you see your sin there? The thoughts you've had, the words you've spoken, the actions, things that you think nobody has ever seen or heard. Yet Jesus saw them that day. He saw that sin. He saw your attitudes, your hardness, your lack of love, your lack of compassion. That's what Jesus is seeing. Lord, if possible, Father, if there is some other way to deal with these sins other than putting them on me, Father, when I look at Bob's sins, they're so horrific. I don't want them on me. They're ugly. They're disgusting. They're horrible. He looked in the cup. He's going to die. Those sins, not just mine, yours too. For all those who are pointed unto eternal life, hundreds, thousands, millions in that cup. to be placed upon him. But there is something else in that cup. It's not just sin. It's God's judgment. It's God's wrath. It's the punishment. One sin deserves an eternity of hell. What do all of my sins, what do all of our sins, you see that punishment? He, he doesn't. He doesn't just see the beatings. He doesn't just see the crown of thorns. He doesn't just see the mockery. He doesn't just see the slaps in the face. He doesn't just hear the insults. He doesn't just feel the nails. It is the rejection of the Father. Oh, Father, if there be another way to deal with man, with Bob's sins. Lord, his soul is sorrowful 
death. Why does he pray? Because of the request, because of the cup that is before him. An eternal rejection by the Father. All brought down, pressed as an olive pressed into a few hours of time. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Here is the Savior. Why the prayer? His humanity, his soul, his cup, his submission. This is also why he prays. He prays so that we might see his complete willingness to do that which must be done for my and your salvation. Keep your finger here in Mark chapter 14. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Verse 35, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is the Father's will? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not my will, but your will. Your will that declares that I must die, that I must suffer, that the sins of all the elect will be on me. come to do his will. A few chapters later, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 17. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Yet, yet, not as I will, but as thou will. His willing submission. His surrender, his voluntary laying down of his life, seen not only in those words, seen not only in those words of the prayer, but then followed by his actions. What happens there? Look with me at Mark chapter 14 again. What happens? Verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. His actions, let us be going. Not let us run away from. Not let us go find a place to hide on this mountain. Not let us seek cover. Rise. Let us go to the betrayer. Let us go to the betrayer. Notice the next words. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came. He prays, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And now he takes the action. Rise, let us go. Let's meet the betrayer. On with this. Let's do that which the Father has willed that I must do. And that I voluntarily now do. What an amazing passage this is for us. I can think of at least three applications or lessons to be learned from this prayer. One is my own weakness. If Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus had reason to pray, how much more I? If we see Jesus praying, we've been studying the life of David Thursday mornings, and I know you women have been doing it Sunday mornings as well. We're in the section in the life of David where he's running around all over the place. And he's not praying. He's not seeking the Lord. And things just go from bad to worse. If Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, prayed, how much more in my weakness? And secondly, how much more in my need? We have an old hymn. The hymn is, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power. When thou art nigh, remember what Jesus tells Peter? Watch and pray. Temptations right there. 
I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour, I need Thee. Bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I need Thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need Thee every hour. Teach me Thy will. And thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour, most holy one. Oh, make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Sometimes we in our Reformed and Calvinistic mentality look at these six weeks that are referred to as Lent and we kind of go oh, there's no need for all of that thinking about sin and thinking about the Savior there's no need for that concentrated time of prayer we don't need to do that and I'm afraid what we often do is we often just say, well, the whole year is for that. But the reality is, do we really spend the whole year doing that? Do we? Thirdly, there is a lesson of comfort here, is there not? For here, who do we see but that mediator, that intercessor, that high priest, who is indeed interceding for me. What a blessing, what a comfort. What a glorious promise God's word gives to me. That the one who prays such in the Garden of Gethsemane now offers prayer before the Father in glory. Not for himself, but for me. He's praying. He's interceding for me. Why? Because he prayed, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And then he did it. So that when you and I pray, we might know that the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, Fully man. Is perfecting our prayer. Before the father. What a comfort. To live. Each hour. With. Amen. Amen. Father. Thank you. That in your word, 
you tell us about your son in the garden. You didn't omit it. You didn't leave it out. But you told us. You told us of this moment. So that we might know of our high priest. That we might know that he did your will. That we might know that it is through him that we have salvation. That we might know that he knew exactly all the sin that I have committed that he was going to die for. And he did it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not just the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And God's people say, Amen.